Welcome to Sleepy Time Travels. I keep asking the question, what happened a hundred years ago? There was a tsunami of creative and uplifting thought about the future of man that seems to have suddenly dried up. Now, our most hopeful utterances are found on Hallmark cards. The spiritual renaissance of new thought lives on only in a caricature remnant called the Law of Attraction, which is more akin to a Dale Carnegie course than the vast and imminent inheritance of our personal godhood and supreme power. Let's sample the flavor of those heady, aspirational times in this episode with a chapter from Horatio Dresser's Perfect Whole. My name is Russell Stamets. I read old books. Some people like to fall asleep while I do. The topics of the public domain books I choose to narrate and produce range from Eastern religion and philosophy to Bulgarian folktales. If you'd like to hear more of the audiobooks I sample on the podcast or check out the rest of my catalog, search Russell Stamets on Audible or iTunes. I'll include links to the audiobooks and the Kindle and print editions in the episode description. If this is something you enjoy listening to, besides buying the books, you can support me by rating the podcast, following, or subscribing. Now, sit back. It's time to get comfortable, relax, and listen. There is but one thing needful, to possess God. Amis Jumont. Eighteen hundred years ago, a voice was heard in the far-off east, enunciating, simply, clearly, and fearlessly, the law of the higher life, and uttering words of wisdom and comfort which have rarely, if ever, been equaled in wealth of meaning and power. These utterances, freighted with the life of him who spoke them, summed up the results of ages of contemplation and devotion in the Orient. They represent today the wisdom and experience for which the East at its best has stood since that far distant time when its sages first sought to give expression to the real and eternal. God is spirit, said the voice, a living, omnipresent father, in whose mansions of power and goodness there is a place for everyone. And if one seek his kingdom and his righteousness through love and service, all else shall be added as the result of natural, immutable law. Side by side with this great doctrine of an imminent spirit, or divine father, he whom the mind alone can perceive, has grown up the great intellectual movement which, originating in Greek speculation has become our modern philosophy and nineteenth-century science with its wondrous achievements. Its one great aim has been to discover the ultimate, self-subsistent, absolute, and eternal reality, as opposed to the ever-changing, the varied, finite, and relative beings and things which perennially sprang up from this ultimate unity. It has been greatly hampered at times by the older doctrine, which, neglecting the spiritual simplicity of Jesus' teaching, 
and assuming to know the whole truth, has become conservative, even worldly and hostile. It has won freedom of speech and investigation only by calmly working amidst the greatest opposition. Until today, the sway of physical science and of supposed atheistical philosophy is such that many are questioning whether the older doctrine can survive the doubt. The endless questioning and scrutiny to which every influential idea is now subjected. Faith and reason, spirit and intellect, have met for their last contest. Never have the claims of intellect been more urgently sustained than they are today. Never has skepticism seemed more plausible. On the other hand, the age looks toward a higher or spiritual life with unexampled vigor and enthusiasm. Not to be put off with the cold formulas of a psychology without a soul. We are searching for proofs of continued existence. We are prying into the occult and unknown, turning once more to the Orient in search of its profoundest wisdom. It is evident that no theory of the universe will suffice which does not somehow find a place for all that is most sacred in human belief, and at the same time most valid for human reason. Since all truth is one, whether perceived by an oriental mystic wrapped in contemplation or insisted upon by the dispassionate reason of a Western philosopher, there can be no ultimate conflict. There must be some criteria, some instinct for truth, free, spiritual, universal, an insight broad and deep enough to compass the great doctrines emphasized by reason and the spiritual sense and comprehensive enough to include all that is vitally persistent in the great common sense, intellectual, moral, and spiritual philosophies of the world. Is it too early to discover whether this great unifying tendency is carrying the best thought of our time? Is the voice of firm conviction no longer to be heard? Is there any remaining basis of belief in a divine or spiritual reality which shall withstand the onslaught of the keenest doubt, yet prove acceptable to the sanest intuition? If such a foundation of belief exists, it surely is not faith alone, for mere faith is often a confession of ignorance, nor mere intellect, since pure logic is proverbially cold and barren. We must, then, give both feeling and thought, intuition and reason, their proper place, and study them as they grow up together, doubting, testing, proving each, never wholly neglecting the one for the other, and never asking ourselves afresh, what is the real essence, the deepest soul of things? What do we mean by reality? Call to mind all that seems to you most vitally real, your most certain convictions, your most troublesome doubts, and your deepest aspirations. Then consider with me how these conflicting interests have developed step by step, first in their rational aspect, in the light of modern science and as related to agnosticism, and then their spiritual culmination in the higher self. 1. One of the first experiences of human life is a sense of keen disappointment. 
the infant awakens to consciousness in the presence of a great world of pleasing objects, apparently spread out upon a flat surface before it. It stretches forth its tiny hands to grasp them, only to find that some objects recede far beyond all reach, while others are painfully near. It is made sternly aware that the strange world into which it has awakened will neither adjust itself to its baby ideas of space, nor to its autocratic grasping volition. Its rapidly quickening consciousness can feel and interpret the world, but, alas, it cannot mold it. The child is surprised, thwarted, suppressed, grieved, until it gradually learns to distinguish its rainbows of fancy, which can never be found in actual, present life, from the world of direct or immediate experience, which is the same day after day. Little by little it learns the great lesson that we really seek is not here, it is ever beyond. Dream leads to dream, and disappointment gives place to glad surprise, only to arouse new desires, alluring the thought ever onward to greater achievement. The flower that smiles today, tomorrow dies, all that we wish to stay tempts, and then flies. Wait until mature life comes, we say, then you shall know what reality is. Life is real. Life is earnest. Love is real. Suffering, evil, strife, and struggle for the bare necessities of existence. These are the realities of life. And childhood's dreams are to give place to a picture of the world painted in the hard and fast colors of character. And thus the truth-seeker is driven from this fact to that only to be told that reality lives not here. It lies somewhere far beyond. What is more pathetic, what is more impressive in life than this well-nigh endless search for something stable amidst a world of fleeting and alluring shows? As youth gives place to manhood, manhood to old age, with its thoughts of a future life, as one tastes of the so-called pleasures of life, as one enters society, reads the world's great books, and visits foreign lands, nowhere finding what one expects, yet everywhere gathering fragments of a hidden reality behind this great wealth of illusion. From the first quickening of thought, the mind is in possession of an ever-changing succession of impressions, of the flux and variety of natural phenomena. The seasons give place to each other in regular sequence, yet are never quite the same. Human beings, wherever found, possess the same general characteristics, and even among primitive peoples, the same tendency to deify the forces supposed to provide over this incessant change is everywhere observable. Yet no two people are wholly alike. No two years bring the same joys and sorrows. The disappointments, the aspirations, the heartaches and struggles of one's friend or neighbor may be as unknown as the experience of the most distant member of the human family. Sudden grief or fortune may reveal unsuspected traits of character, unsparing and 
self-denying devotion in those nearest and dearest to us, thereby proving how shallow was our supposed insight and friendship. Nature offers the strongest reason for believing that she is ever uniform, yet she treats us to countless surprises, and we can only trust that no serious change will ever break the harmony of physical events as we now know them. The eternal hills are not eternal at all, but are the results of the gradual upheaving and sinking of the earth's crust, modified by a thousand incidental, ever-active causes. The densest rock masses and the greatest structures reared by man may be transformed in an incredibly short time into the gases or elementary substances from which they were slowly evolved. History, language, art, science, nearly everything that forms the object of human knowledge is subject to change. Man, the interpreter, and the world he interprets are in a thousand respects unstable, fleeting, illusory. Man appears on the scene of the world, play for a time, freighted with the prejudices, the beliefs, and inclinations of his ancestors, and pervaded by more ambitions and dreams of success than are destined ever to be realized. Environment, mental and physical, desire, ambition, temperament, the influences of other minds, and of educational and business interests, vie with each other to mold him and his thought world in their peculiar fashion. In a profound sense, as we have seen, the world, even for the artist, the poet, and the highly cultivated men of science who give their lives to the one great task of drawing near the heart of nature, even for them the world is individual, personal, colored by their leading interests in those aspects of life to which fate has rendered them receptive. It is clear that immediate experience is not the ultimate reality we seek, although it is assuredly an aspect of it. Reality is not so easily found as this. When asked, what is reality? It is futile to reply, why, the world is just the world. If you wish to know what reality is, Strike yonder wall, live, labor, suffer, enjoy, and know that the self which thus encounters reality is itself real. For although this is in a sense real, and the world of feeling, of finite self, and its unsatisfied longings, most certainly and surely existent, yet such an appeal to experience simply means what one person has seen suffered, enjoyed, and hoped for. It gives no criterion of reality. To know what this endless spectacle of change signifies, to know how far your world and mine are identical, we must first understand ourselves in relation to the world and seek out that ultimate being which is the sufficient condition of all that exists. Nor is the case much better when we turn from the world of everyday thought to the more exact realm of physical science. Surely no product of human intelligence seems more thorough, convincing, and accurate. Up to a certain point, 
Science is virtually unanswerable. It offers the only plausible description of nature ever given. The theory of evolution, the law of the persistence of force and substance, the universality of law, and the grand world picture painted by geology, biology, and the other special sciences, showing how all existing forms of life have been slowly developed through never-ceasing combination and recombination of elementary substances or atoms. Who would think of disputing these grand results as long as they are confined to their special field? But what of the higher nature of man, with its rational, moral, and spiritual tendencies, the unity of self-consciousness, and the wide range of phenomena made known on a higher plane than physical sense? What if space and time should prove to be appearances? How came the atoms to assume these wonderful shapes in conformity to exact law? What holds the universe together, giving it unity, system, life, purpose, an ultimate and self-subsistent basis? What, in the last analysis, is the persistent force or motion on which science insists when driven to the last stronghold? For these questions, physical science has no satisfactory answer. In fact, science is built upon postulates and is everywhere face-to-face -face with a so-called insoluble problem. Neither force nor substance alone, nor both together, can give ultimate reality. Materialism is not and should never claim to be thoroughgoing. Philosophy, and the only danger from it, lies in uncritically assuming it to be in some sense final. It is not final in any respect. It has no valid reason for assuming that only the physical order of nature exists. It has no rational way of dealing with its own postulates, and so far as it rightfully insists upon the hard and fast realities of our physical life, all this can be dealt with consistently only by that higher branch of knowledge, which alone offers a criterion of reality. In order to make this perfectly clear, recall for a moment the foregoing description of the first experiences of life, or ask yourself what you mean by the word thing, by yonder wall, chair, table. You mean, I suspect, that the object has certain spatial qualities or extension, hardness, resistance. All this, we have seen, is known only in relation to a physical organism, in proportion as it is translated into consciousness and observed by a thinking subject. We have no ground, then, for affirming that these material objects, our organisms, nor even our own percipient selves, are absolutely and independently real since we know them only as parts of a twofold experience whose unity must be sought in a fundamental reality. Which element of your experience are you willing to surrender? Physical feeling by which you perceive an outer world? Your ideas about the world? Or the self that contemplates both the world and its ideas about it? You will not surrender one of them. And if you retain them all, the great law-governed world of nature with its wonderful variety of forces and substances, the ever-changing world of human thought and emotion, and the world of finite selves. Their unity, 
their cause and ground, the basis of good and evil, of truth and error, the great other, which is our eternal object of thought, must be sought elsewhere. Accordingly, science beats a retreat upon the unknowable. All these diversities of matter and motion, so we are told, are the manifestations of some hidden power that is absolutely unknowable. To the realm of this inscrutable power we must, then, turn there to encounter a far more formidable antagonist than materialism. 3. The argument for the unknowable, or thing in itself, is briefly somewhat as follows. In addition to our general finitude, which necessarily makes experience a world of narrow limitations for every human being, there is, as we have seen, a long array of facts to show that the world, as I represent it, is unique, that a different world exists for each observer. Even my time and my space, with their included determinations, are different from yours. I perceive everything imperfectly, which my limited experience makes it possible for me to perceive at all. Seizing upon such relations as my temperament, the associations and conditions into which I was born, and my transient interests lead me to emphasize. There is an element in every fundamental problem which eludes the subtlest scrutiny. The precise point, it may be, essential to its complete solution, the knowledge of which might transform the entire problem. Only an infinite self could grasp all these relations in one simultaneous cognition and therefore know things as they really are. My reason declares certain conclusions to be true which your faith and experience will not let you accept. I have no right to impose my representation of the world and my temperamental conditions upon you, nor even my conception of reality. Insofar as our representations and experiences differ, they are clearly not reality and I am not sure that they coincide at all. I am therefore forced to conclude that my finite self, with all its particular determinations, is appearance or illusion. I simply know my own states of consciousness, and they are finite, known by a finite self, and never transcended. How could a finite self ever know anything about the life and possibilities of the infinite? I am confident that I can know nothing, either directly or indirectly, about the universe as it exists apart from my consciousness. For how could self-conscious appearance, perceiving the world show, thereby learn anything concerning that which only appears? All I can consistently say is this. Some inscrutable power exists, for something persistently appears or represents itself to me. Concerning its nature, I can say absolutely nothing that is not self-contradictory. No possible term of human speech can describe it. The contrast is indescribably absolute. The thing in itself is utterly and forever removed from finite experience and finite thought. Such is the process by which I put the power utterly and forever beyond me shutting myself into the narrow prison of my own finitude. But I ask you to note carefully that the power, which I have thus put away, 
is happily the non-existent. It is a fiction of speculative thought. If I could show that I am ten times removed from direct contact with reality, it would not follow that reality is the unknowable. And the more acute the analysis of my ignorance, the more positive would be the basis of belief that I know something definite about ultimate being. If God were utterly removed from the world, how would we even know that he exists off there, alone and unknowable? Or, if one admitted the absolute contrast, how could one prove it, unless one were infinite, therefore comprehending all the reasons for affirming the contrast? Is it not assuming omniscience to affirm that reality is the unknowable? If knowledge of the absolute X, or power behind phenomena, were utterly impossible, then no sentence in any language would contain the slightest intimation of genuine truth. Therefore, the conclusion that there is an unknowable would be utterly false and illogical. If there were an unknowable, we could not know it, and so far as we possess any wisdom at all, we know that the inscrutable does not exist. Finally, no absolute X, or unknowable thing in itself, could be far off there, utterly apart from our world and our consciousness. Since without possessing our world, our thought, all that exists or ever could exist or be thought as a part of itself, this power would not be absolute. Yet this doctrine of the unknowable has taken a firm hold on the thought of our time. It is important, then, to note that the entire doctrine is, in its deepest truth, a positive basis of belief in an ultimate, knowable, present, living reality. He who is wise in his own conceit will tell you confidently what God is, what life is, while the truly wise man speaks very cautiously, well knowing that only God himself could fully know all the relations of the simplest fact. It is Huxley, or some other eminent man of science who has studied nature all his life, who hesitates to say what life is. While he who is not wise enough to be an agnostic enthusiastically expounds the secrets of life. But the agnostic himself falls into a worse difficulty unless he sees that, in learning the limitations of finite life, he is at the same time advancing step by step toward positive insight into that deep-lying reality in whose being and love we abide. How could the philosopher describe the infinite self-cognition of God as opposed to our own imperfect thinking, unless he beheld that relationship with unusual clearness? Granted that reality is in the profoundest sense unknown, and as a whole far transcends our experience, on the other hand, what is so well known? What else forms an object of thought? By what else do we live? Why do we feel that God is more than pantheism, more than any system of thought would imply? Why do we distrust any account of him, however ideal, unless we already know him in our heart of hearts to be infinitely grander and more real? And what experience? What attempt to grasp the divine is in the end more convincing and impressive than this precise discovery that every account of him is 
inadequate. Surely, the profoundest skeptic is the most logical, the sanest, wisest of men, if haply he understand the significance of his doubts. The permanent basis of skepticism, as it is developed in the history of thought, is the one ineradicable ground of belief in an ultimate reality. That which in my profoundest and calmest moment of doubt I cannot seriously question is the only foundation of positive belief. It is the old experience of self-consciousness again, the finite self discovering by contrast the great self, the great spirit underlying phenomena, without which the selves in their phenomena could not be. He alone knows the Father to be literally the all who was given thought the utmost opportunity to doubt him, only to find that the mind is begirt on all sides by that which it would deny. Sound human ignorance to its ultimate depth, fearlessly, patiently, persistently, and you shall find that every item of doubt is at the same time an inexpressibly wealthy source of profound conviction. Until the giant skepticism has been met and mastered in his own realm, the human spirit has no genuine peace. Why, then, should we look beyond the universe for an utterly lonely creator, a god whom no one can know, or a thing in itself existing far off there in absolute solitude? Spencer's unknowable could never have originated our experience nor is the world explained by postulating Kant's thing in itself. Whatever exists, whatever we think and feel, belongs to the true God. God is always here, or not at all. And experience is constantly teaching us more and more, guiding the thought deeper and deeper into the heart of things, until at last one really learns what it is to believe in that deepest moment of doubt when agnosticism itself is transmuted into positive conviction. Starting with the obvious fact that man must have some innate capacity to perceive the world in order to be aware of it at all, we have seen that whatever he knows or perceives externally has some ground or correspondence within him. Whatever he accomplishes is, in part, the outgrowth and development of this innate capacity. Whatever he persistently hopes for or desires dwells by nature within him. Spencer, philosophizing, already possesses his misnamed unknowable. Even the possible is also, in part, the real. No mind is utterly deceived. No error is absolute. No thought, no fancy, however wild, is without some reference to reality, some basis in actual experience. Psychology furnishes striking confirmation of this by showing that imagination is never purely creative. All thinking starts with experience, and is itself a form of experience. The most absurd vagary is a partial content of experience, abstracted from the great whole, which is the sum total of all that actually exists. It is therefore clear that an immediately present reality exists, equal to the task of originating our universe, the sufficient ground of all differences, 
of all forces, causes, qualities, and relations, corresponding in a measure to experience in its threefold sense of feeling, thought, and will, and uniting within itself law, fate, freedom, the apparent inconsistencies of evil and suffering, the varied world of nature, and the world of finite consciousness, of hope, of struggle for immortality, and for perfect wisdom. Whence came the universe? How came we by these unquelched longings, this restless search for truth, beauty, and virtue, this belief in a god or spirit? this rational demand for an ultimate ground of things, unless there is a deep, unfathomed self, a fundamental reality, which already possesses this limitless experience of nature, of the social organism, and of self-consciousness in its completion. And if this deeper self is identical with the reality which underlies all being, must we not enlarge our consciousness until it shall include the all in all? The eternal beauty, the imminent Father, knowing us as a part of himself. This is the real other, which completes all feeling, thought, and will, the real object of pursuit in all human existence, the one whose wondrous world of the many completes its total self, in the perfect whole. Surely the existence of God cannot be demonstrated if He is the whole, the ground and content of all demonstration, of all thought, even when we try to put Him far from us as the unknowable. The attempt to prove the existence of God would be like endeavoring to prove that number exists by the use of certain numerals, whereas number is used in every possible demonstration. We prove its existence by using it. You cannot prove the existence of a deity by any reasoning process, for there may be nothing in a logical conclusion which was not in the premises. And if God be in your premises, you have begged the question. If he be not in your premises, he will not be logically found in your conclusion. One fact of paramount importance, then, offsets all that science or any logician can say in regard to proved knowledge. The chief possessions of human intelligence, the idea of God, the fact that we exist in a world of thoughts and feelings, referring to a will or purpose lying beyond them, and the fact that we possess hopes for the future, these ideas are incapable of demonstration. We must start with them. We can hope only at best to understand how we came to recognize their ultimate validity. Reality simply is, at once its own reason for being and the basis of all accounts, all theories, all recognition of it. Directly or indirectly, we know nothing else. We feel nothing else. We are nothing else. And reality eludes us only when we set over against it some aspect or part of it as though it were independently real. It is the all-inclusive one, the self-consistent, harmonious unity, or individual, embracing in a single system all diversity, all appearance, all thought and feeling, goodness, beauty, and truth. We never think more profoundly than 
when we turn to it as the one ultimate ground of all that exists, itself all that manifests and knows it, the sublime whole of which it is a joy to be a part. Reason pushed to its utmost limits in the profoundest moments of skepticism thus assures us of the existence of an ultimate reality whose wisdom, although far transcending our own, yet includes it, leaving no room for absolute doubt. We have stopped once more with that which knows us in these most important moments of consciousness. We shall now see that our higher nature not only confirms this conclusion, but shows us that this reality is ultimately spiritual. Sometimes, in a moment of unusual stillness, one rises wholly above the earthly or personal self to the eternal, causeless and spaceless realm, where infinite peace abides. One can hardly tell how the experience begins. All descriptions of it and of what one perceives there seem utterly inadequate, cold, and prosaic. Yet no moment of life seems more real than this, none so near the soul life or dreamless experience which we sometimes feel is to be ours in the future. And no experience leaves a more lasting impression, for one is no longer the mere finite self seeking to fit incongruous and fugitive facts into the mosaic of rational truth. These rare moments seldom come when they are voluntarily sought, but a somewhat seeks us. Something ineffable draws the attention away from the cares and limitations of finite life for a few moments of calmest rest in intimate nearness to the life of infinite wisdom and perfect love. It is then that one has some sense of life's meaning as a well-ordered whole, as one surveys a fair landscape from a commanding mountain height looking far beyond the narrow veils of doubt and despair. One sees that the whole is beautiful just because the landscape possesses its varied configurations, because man is given every opportunity to doubt, to sin, to defeat the moral and spiritual purposes for which he was born. One believes it inevitable that there should be but one ultimate energy, one grand moral ideal, slowly realized, one final wisdom, love, and goodness. For one sees the tendency of all facts, of all lives, all purposes, to refer to and be completed in the life which knows neither beginning nor ending, the great infrangible whole where the finite will is essential to the will of infinite love. One seems to penetrate to the very heart of this deepest essence, perceiving its life, its meaning, its purpose, both in its transcendent and in its manifested sense, as the realizing energy of our world. One understands that, unless there was such a universe, with its paradoxes of sin and suffering, and the perpetual flow of events which, on the human side, seem so mysterious, thus bringing every varied aspects of the self before its all-comprehending thought as objects of its unfailing devotion. Its life would not be complete. 
the wisdom or beauty of everything as it is, in this completed sense, is thus brought vividly before the mind. In this one brief glance behind the dream of physical life, a flood of light is thrown upon the troublesome problems of our finitude. Thereafter, one foresees, all descriptions of life will seem short-sighted and mean, which do not thus view things in the light of their origin, development, and outcome as related to the life of the whole. Happily, too, one's own life seems fitted into this great fabric of divine self-manifestation. It is not lost, it does not lose its character, but feels itself assigned to its due place. The thought penetrates at will through the boundlessness of eternity, where all is free, calm, harmonious, and where the finite dwells with the infinite in a closeness of sympathy, which words can barely suggest. For here, on the one hand, is that self whom no words can adequately name, whom no thought can grasp, whom no life, no world, no universe seems wholly to reveal, who is no less but infinitely more when we mean by the words person, universe, mind, beauty, power, goodness, spirit, God, Father, or any term that has been rightfully applied to him in the past. Yet, on the other hand, the finite self is still there, one with, but not identical with, the ineffable spirit so that in this sublime moment one is apparently, yes, one is deeply and truly this self, in part, beholding its well-ordered system of self-manifestation. What is this living essence which makes its present known in moments when we least expect it? The greatest minds of the ages have been illuminated by it. Jesus described his life as one with it. Under various names and in differing descriptions, it appeals to us through the profoundest utterances of man. Sometimes in the experiences of utmost despair, it is the sustaining presence which alone carries one through the dark valley of sorrow. Is it not fundamentally, in this most personal sense, a sublime affection, the perfection and essence of purest love? The essence of life is described by Schopenhauer as will, and our study of self-consciousness has shown that will, purpose, or desire, is the center of all finite experience. But will is a cold word. Love includes will and vivifies it. It expresses the purpose of life and its warmth as well. Swedenborg defines this divine essence as love and wisdom the two elements necessary to all completed beings. It is surely love in some form that governs all our acts and makes us cling to life, and our love is good in proportion to the wisdom that guides it. Only love could endear us to God. Only love can be conceived as the ultimate motive for founding a universe. God is love, the New Testament declares, without qualification. Love is, in truth, the very heart of life. He who possesses it to the greatest degree is nearest life's reality. He who sees that it must have its basis in perfect intelligence 
and its expression in lesser beings whom it can love and serve, is very near the great mystery which only the varied phenomena of a perfect universe could fully declare. But any idea of God is confessedly an abstraction, a content separated by a finite mind from the great mass of existence and partaking of the character of the one who conceives it. No two ideas of God can be alike, for the reason that no two experiences, no two minds are alike. The identity or unity lies in that which the idea attempted to describe. What we mean by saying that God is spirit is evidently that profoundest of all truths for which the world's greatest thinkers have ever contended, namely, that nothing visible or material is final. It is variety. It is appearance. While in contrast to it, reality is spiritual. It is a mind. What we mean by affirming that God is love is that highest manifestation of the living eminent spirit, which endears us to him personally as the Father. That revelation of reality which we feel, in which we trust, and this, so far as we can express it, is the highest finite point of view. But the Supreme Being is all this and more, all love and more, all wisdom and more. He is literally the all, the great sum total, nothing else, nothing less, is, in the strictest sense, absolutely real. Thus understood, the chief value of any idea of God lies in a frank acknowledgment of its limitations, its utter inadequacy. The existence of the higher self, which beholds and comprehends these exalted experiences in their transcendent significance, is the deepest evidence that reality is spiritual. This consciousness we found already existing in germ in the first experiences of life. It was this self with its ideals, its moral sense, and its earnest love of truth, which refused to be satisfied either with physical science or with the unknowable, and found itself already in possession of reality when skepticism yielded up its concealed wisdom. Knowledge of the self in some of its aspects has been our guide and corrective throughout. Of the existence of some self every thinking person is sure, whether or not one sees that one may logically proceed from this to the being of an absolute whole. Concerning this self, we know three great facts, namely that it feels, thinks, and wills. In relation to its perceptions is the organized world lying beyond. Its deepest feelings are included in a self larger and wiser than the self of everyday life, and finding the higher self existing there with its manifold attributes, we are logically bound to give it its rightful place in our thought, although it proved to be but a manifestation of a spiritual reality lying deeper than its profoundest consciousness. To many minds, the existence of a higher self in living touch with the Spirit is the one sure evidence that God exists, and they would no more doubt its deep reality, its guidance, and the realm of possibilities of insight, life, and power which it reveals, than they would doubt the most persistent evidence for the existence of nature. For 
its assurance is far more trustworthy than the occasional vision of the mystic or the contradictory reason of the purely intellectual thinker. It is always there. It is a part of one's life, of one's inmost heart. The transition from the finite to the infinite, it is a continuous idealizing tendency, acting in the same thorough orderly manner as the evolutionary forces of nature. It is the self that feels pity for humanity that rises to higher and still higher planes of consciousness through the development of inner calmness and poise. Ever ready to guide, to uplift, to inspire, and to strengthen whenever one stills the more personal self and listens in all humility for its unmistakable emphasis of what is good, of the true and the right. Thus, in whatever direction of thought we turn, we are brought face to face with the same elements, namely a conscious self finding itself existing in a whole which, on the one hand, shades off imperceptibly into the eternal, the unknown, the ineffable, and on the other tends to become the world of finite feeling, thought, and will. Our final conception of reality must be one which, while insisting that these deeper experiences are manifestations of the real rather than the very essence itself, and declaring all systems of thought to be inadequate, yet finds a place for them all, and is large enough to include all that is vitally true in the great philosophies and religions of the world. The verities of sense, of actual life, of feeling, and of reason. Nothing is excluded, but everything apparent is a manifestation and has its place in ultimate being. Common sense, physical science, pantheism, agnosticism, and the rest are accepted for what they are fundamentally worth as enrichments of our knowledge of that power whose depth of beauty and goodness is such that all these revelations of him are needed. Every aspect of reality, even that embodied in our belief in a personal God, or God as the imminent cause and life of our world, looks beyond itself to the deep-lying unity where all manifestations converge upon the eternal one, the perfect whole. Let us try to realize what it means to be shut, included in a whole whose center is everywhere, and their circumference nowhere. Since this ineffable whole of beauty, wisdom, and power is literally the all, there could be no other independent being or reality. For all that exists has its being in that ultimate beyond which nothing can ever go. No part is real, self-sufficient, or good in itself, nor completely self-knowing. Man cannot know himself as he really is cannot understand the world, a friend, life, until all this has found its eternal setting in the background of the truly real. No thought, no emotion, no longing, no prayer falls outside the all-inclusive thought, the eternity of love and wisdom toward which we aspire. Such wisdom, goodness, life, power as we possess, is not ours alone. It is ours through the higher self, and 
we take undue credit to ourselves when we claim independence of insight and power. Since there is and could be but one perfect wisdom, one infinite goodness, and one efficient energy, all finite goodness and activity must be a sharing of this divine power. All qualities, all phenomena, beings, forces, and worlds have a common source. Human society, with all its contrasts and its selfishness, nature, with all its bounties and calamities, has the same ultimate foundation. Not a wail from the poverty-stricken mother, not a curse from the most wretched criminal, not a pulse beat in any creature that lives, nor the activity of the tiniest atom, can be without an unwordably close and sympathetic relation to that eternal experience which holds all possibilities within its life. It therefore matters little who and what we are and how we begin to think. If thought at last leads us to this one resistless conclusion that there is and could be but one ultimate reality. This doctrine is, therefore, the basis of the broadest charity and the greatest tolerance, since not your way of thinking alone, nor mine, nor that of the sect into which we were educated, but always all systems of thought, all aspirations, and all lives lead to the one central source for all who pursue thought to its ultimate. Does it seem hard and cruel that the perfect life of God should need so much sorrow and suffering, or permit so much misery to exist? Then let us remember that we can judge of nothing by itself, that nothing is complete as we know it. We perceive it only in the light of certain relations we can but dimly see its outcome and meaning. But that the real includes the ideal in the actual process of realization, we have found ample evidence in the existence of the higher self. Who understands another well enough to judge him? Who can tell the meaning of events in this unfinished stage of society, where the majority of people are still selfish and unreasoning? Who shall say that in the light of the whole, which alone gives reality, there is not some rich compensation for all that is heartrending and sinful. Who shall say that the divine experience is not the richer and the more beautiful just because of this infinite variety of finite life with all its sins and shortcomings? Are you willing to condemn the world on the basis of your scant wisdom before you learn the meaning of life in its ultimate sense? All suffering seems baneful while we are in its throes. All ignorance seems bliss until we learn that, without contrast, without relative evil, there can be no genuine wisdom and no ultimate good. Then we learn to rely on the higher self, awaiting its guidance, taking whatever it brings, and dealing with it patiently and thoughtfully. Furthermore, each man is, by virtue of his existence, a part of the eternal whole, and possesses rights of which no one may justly deprive him. Any system of philosophy which separates him from his native environment, wherein all wisdom, all love, and goodness are his to the degree that he is able to receive them, 
any legislation, any social custom, any political or religious doctrine which deprives him of his rights is illogical and unethical. Man belongs to the world, to the universe, and to God. So much of the world belongs to man as is essential to his freedom, his welfare, and education. So much of the universe is his as he can contemplate and understand. So much of God as he needs to help him on his way, while in no measure depriving him of that strength and character which experience alone can give, is his by right of birth. The finite inheres in the infinite. Man dwells in God. And when society shall recognize this ethical and spiritual relation to the great all, there will be a wonderful change in human conduct and thought. But how often we forget that all this depends on what we are, on character and self-knowledge. How often we mistake the abstract for the concrete and suppose that the ideal which we grasp in an ecstasy of timeless intuition is very soon to be fulfilled, and ought immediately to be realized in the space and time world of today. How often we forget that there must be evolution. Forever the perfect reality is made known in two aspects, as the inexpressibly great and beautiful life of absolute goodness and love eternal and unchangeable, and as the universe of ever-changing manifestation wrought to its completion by measured reflection and far-seeing adaptation of means to ends. Slowly, patiently, but surely, thoroughly, and with an eternal fitness, a beauty of design and organization which have been the wonder of man ever since human thinking began. Our world is nearing its completion as an organic part of a great stellar and planetary system. Slowly and with infinite care, the complex organism of human society is learning its lesson. Guided by forces which we see not, moving toward ends which are lost in an ideal future, and in every part, in every soul, in every struggling life with you and with me, inspired, guided, and sustained by that spirit, which nothing can separate from us or from the world, since there is not beside. Does it invalidate our conclusion that we cannot explain all this in detail, because we cannot assign an adequate reason for existence? Is it not far more reasonable to affirm that finite and infinite must always have existed together, at once giving up all attempts to conceive of a beginning or ultimate origin of manifestation. If there is but one last reality, there could be but one possible total universe, while there may be infinite variety or difference in worlds and their inhabitants. Reality is never more nor less than itself. Appearance or manifestation is not something added to it. No relations among its worlds and finite beings can be new to omniscience. Nothing could have an absolute beginning. The universe of manifestation is eternal, actually or potentially. Why its phenomena exist, and why we are what we truly are, 
only the complete self-cognizing reality could ever know. We know in part. Certain unsolved problems are sure to perplex us for many years to come. It does not, however, follow that they are insoluble. Because God, in the absolute sense, dwells afar from us, so far that we can perceive but a gleam of light from his radiant glory. It does not follow that we may not know him in part, feel him in part, be guided by him in part, as truly as we enjoy our share of the sun's warmth and light, every ray of which is unmistakably due to the one central luminary. And if his beauty and goodness is mediated to us, it is not because he is distant from us in space like the sun, but because we can only receive a part of that which, in its fullness, is eternally here. God himself mediates his wisdom to us. The inmost self, which knows this great fact in its deep significance, is, I repeat, the safest clue to the nature and existence of God. To be sure, one still has doubts and longings since one is thus made most consciously aware of one's limitations. But reality as thus manifested is at least a living, a conscious, sympathetic reality, and not an abstraction, cold and formal. It is unmistakably spiritual, making itself known in consciousness rather as the seeker, the knower, the possessor, than as a somewhat which comes at our bidding, and one can only say at last, in undoubting humility and awe, Peace, peace, God is here, let me know him, let me feel you in the depth and beauty of the eternal now. Is not this the beginning of the Christ consciousness, that self which dwells so near reality, so near the divine being, that it says, Not my will, but thine be done which takes no thought for the future, never considers itself, but ever loves and serves, that it may be purer, truer, nobler, the passing of the human into the divine. Here, at any rate, is the highest level we can now reach, where the finite soul no longer regards itself as the source of its best thoughts and its wisest deeds, where the soul could not doubt if it would, since it is in the moment of complete self-renunciation, perhaps of utter despair and weakness, that God at last makes himself really known. Thus, in the moment of the profoundest agony, it may be when the soul cries out in despair, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? As in the moment of the sincerest skepticism and in the sublimest vision of the mystic, there is an assurance born of infinite wisdom and power, before which human will, human doubt, is powerless. The finite will in its utmost extremity confesses its weakness, losing itself to find itself again transfigured in the glory of the infinite. This it is to know God, to be known and loved by Him, to know reality as opposed to the shows of life, and in that one transcendent moment to win that peace, that conviction, that strength, which nothing can ever take away.
still awake? If you'd like to hear more of Perfect Whole, just search Audible or iTunes or Amazon for the Kindle and print editions. I'll put links in the episode description. And again, please follow, subscribe, give five stars, or let me know in any way that you enjoyed your trip.